It's Thursday, December 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The cost of getting some professional degrees are leaving students with high debt and without the high salaries to match. Programs for veterinarians, dentists, chiropractic medicine, physical therapy, and even optometry are producing graduates with high debt and very modest beginning salaries. Beyond the debt, it's also hurting those very occupations in some areas as graduates avoid lower-paying rural areas, which can cause shortages. Andrea Fuller, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for a look at how the cost of professional degrees are still hurting students. Next, as we enter the holidays, there are more chances than ever to reconnect with old friends, and it can be a very powerful thing. Research has shown that psychological stress often causes nostalgia, and reconnecting can give us a sense of stability. A good exercise could be to make a list of old friends you miss and then reach out. It could increase your positive mood, self-esteem, or self-confidence. Elizabeth Bernstein, author of the Bonds column at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Because these loans, you're paying on grad plus loans, often six, seven percent interest. So you see cases where people owe twenty thousand dollars a year in interest and it can quickly get out of control. Joining us now is Andrea Fuller, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Uh, Interesting article you wrote. Professional degrees leave students with high debt, but without high salaries. We recently spoke to one of your other colleagues at The Journal when they were talking about law degrees in particular, but now we're talking about other professional degrees, things like veterinary medicine. We're looking at chiropractic medicine, physical therapy, optometry could be looped into all of this. And the metric really is, is that the high debt ratio to income levels two years after graduating just is not matching up in a lot of these different fields. So Andrea, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Yeah, absolutely. I'll say we've been covering student debt really intensively for the past year. And one of the things that I noticed is we wrote about high debt graduate degrees like film and social work. People would say, oh, the debt, um, sure, it's manageable if, if you're a dentist, because then you're going to go be a dentist and you'll make a lot of money and you'll be fine. But actually, that's not necessarily the case. And some of these people with professional degrees are borrowing astronomical amounts of money. We're talking half a million dollars to become a dentist or a veterinarian. And while their salaries are higher than the average American, they're not making enough to really cover the interest on this because these loans, you're paying on grad plus loans, often six, seven percent interest. So you see cases where people owe $20,000 a year in interest and it can quickly get out of control. You mentioned grad plus. Explain that a little bit because This is a program that lets students cover their school costs and living expenses. And I think that's important because if you're rolling everything into these loans, that's where these high prices are really coming from. Absolutely. So Grad Plus is just a a name for a government loan program. But what it, it means essentially is graduate students through this program can borrow up to the cost of attendance of college including books, fees, living expenses, et cetera. And so no matter how high colleges set prices, students can borrow in grad plus what they owe. 
And that is how we have the situation of people having half a million dollars in federal loans. Tuition has risen at all levels of education, but including veterinary schools and dentistry schools. We have some numbers in our story that show the average debt load has increased really dramatically over the last 20 years, certainly faster than salaries. And sort of a rule of thumb is don't borrow more than you owe. And even if a dentist is earning nationally, the median salary for dentists is, is around 164000 I believe. And that is still far, far lower than what people in these programs are actually borrowing. And then what happens after that? You know, after a period of about 20 to 25 years, if the balance can't be repaid, this gets shifted onto taxpayers through federal loan forgiveness. So that can be an issue. And then for these industries themselves, the other thing is, is that if a student has this high debt, they're going to go where the highest paying job is. A lot of time that takes them to other places and it could leave these gaps in services in certain areas, certain rural areas where they could be short of dentists, could be short of veterinarians and other health providers. And uh, so it could create these gaps in services also. That could be a, another problem that's happening. Absolutely. There are far-ranging consequences of this. If you have $400,000 in veterinary school debt, it's really hard to make that choice to go be a rural veterinarian. Most of these people that we talk to are on what are called income-driven repayment plans. So the government lets you make payments according to your income. And that's ultimately very beneficial for the students in the short term. The problem is in the long term, their balances will grow because they're not covering the interest. And so you end up in these situations where you can get your debt forgiven after 20, 25 years, but you're going to owe this huge tax bill on your debt forgiveness. So we're dealing with a situation where there are really long-term consequences for the students. There are long-term consequences for these professions, including you know a lack of rural dentists and veterinarians. And then there are long-term consequences for taxpayers. We've written in our reporting throughout the year that Grad Plus was thought to be a, a moneymaker for the, you know, the government. People could borrow money and, and they'd all pay it back because they're going to grad school, right? So they're, they're going to be wealthy and they'll all pay it off. But my colleague Josh Mitchell has written about how the federal government's lending program is actually potentially facing a budget hole because people are actually not paying off what they're borrowing. Let's talk a little bit about some of the people you profiled in the story. Sarah is one who finished her veterinary studies at University of Pennsylvania with about $400,000 in student debt. And this is, I guess, uh, an extra 30000 from loans from prior studies also. So she has $430,000 worth of debt. She is working as an associate veterinarian for about $100,000 a year. But I think in the end of the story, the debt came out, I guess, overall, she would have had $700,000 total because of accumulating interest. I mean, that is insane amounts of money. It really is. And yeah, Sarah was using a calculator provided by a veterinary industry group that allows you to sort of project your student loans. And, and obviously, there are lots of unknowns. You don't know exactly at what your rate your salary is going to increase. It's hard to estimate all these things precisely. But the way it works is you pay 10% of your discretionary income on these income-driven repayment plans. And that doesn't cover the interest payments. The interest on these $400,000, $500,000 loans is so high that after years and years and years, you owe or you can owe 
far more than you started. So it's really psychologically daunting for a lot of people to be making payments, to be making substantial payments and just see their balances grow and grow and grow. To a lot of this stuff, you know, in all the previous reporting, it kind of holds true too. The school really matters as well. You made mention in the article for dentistry programs, University of Southern California in Los Angeles and New York University in New York City. In some cases, the median debt was more than four times as much as the median earnings that graduates were getting. NYU specifically with uh, their dentist program, they say, you know, you could expect to pay 572000 for its four-year program. This includes living expenses. So the schools do matter. And then in a contrast, there was another school out of North Carolina, which the program is geared to people who are going to stay in the area, in the state, and their debt is way lower. Schools like NYU and USC are among the most expensive in the country. And and one of the things that for dentistry and one of the things that we've been writing about this year is the sort of allure of these big name schools. We only have early career earnings data on the school level. And because, for example, in New York State, you have to do a residency for dentistry. It's not fully clear what their earnings are going to be. But again, nationally, the median pay of dentists is in the 160s. So we're not looking at astronomical median pay for dentists, but there, you know, certainly are higher paid dentists than that. And so with these schools, it can be very expensive. There's a premium to choosing it. And I, and I think, you know, in terms of the state school in North Carolina, which is granted has, you know, is for in-state residents, but something like that is more manageable. And they're conscious of the fact that they want people to serve rural communities. Yeah, that's East Carolina University. They only accept applicants from uh, state residents, and their graduates carried a median debt of about 131000 But their income, the median income, was about 120000 So much, much more manageable on that front right there. Still a little over one-to-one, sure. but much closer than a lot of these other dental programs. And certainly, you know, we haven't mentioned chiropractic yet, but those were the programs that had the worst debt loads generally compared to earnings. I mean, chiropractors were borrowing six, seven times their earnings. And so what is being done to address the issue, help the issue, uh, help the students? I know after we said 20 to 25 years, there's the federal loan forgiveness. But as you mentioned, over the long term, that's not going to be untenable. So what are they trying to do? How do they remedy this? (laughs) That's a good question. I think political debate right now is very much about student loan forgiveness and not so much about addressing these more systemic issues. I think that costs are continuing to climb. And I don't know if we have seen any evidence that that's going to change. Graduate programs are generally seen as revenue drivers, money makers for universities. Undergraduates from low-income backgrounds get heavy subsidies, but that's not really true at graduate school. And I think there's an assumption that, you know, if we keep raising costs on the dentists and the veterinarians and the lawyers, they're in these professional fields that make a lot of money, and so they'll be able to pay it off. And that isn't necessarily the case. And so there really are lingering systemic issues out there. Andrea Fuller, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me.
He says, oh, by the way, my wife and I are going to be in Seattle. And so they get together and they get together and they talk the entire weekend. And it's just exactly like they picked up. And Kevin tells his friend at the end of this weekend, you are like a brother to me. Joining us now is Elizabeth Bernstein, reporter and author of the relationship column Bonds at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about an interesting story you wrote, the secret power of reconnecting with old friends. I saw it and instantly thought, you know, this is a perfect story for the holiday season. People are going home. People are just kind of feeling nostalgic. Uh, sometimes people are lonely and reconnecting with old friends can be such a powerful thing for you, you know, uh, for your mental health, all of that, really. And um, you, so you wrote about how impactful this could be for people. So, Elizabeth, tell us a little bit more about it. Well, I agree. I think it's just like a a great time right now as we are going home and we're sort of thinking of the things we're grateful about and often we are grateful for people. And I wrote about this after a few old, old friends I hadn't even heard from in decades reached out from different areas. In one week, I had three people who did not know each other, you know, from different areas of my life reach out and I thought, wow, something's going on because I myself have also been missing a lot of people from my past. And so I started to look into it. And what I learned, which fascinated me, was that we become more nostalgic in times of distress. We start to have this sentimental longing for the past when we are feeling lonely, as you said, feeling sad, feeling disconnected, you know, all of those things that certainly the pandemic has done to us. It's no wonder we're feeling nostalgic. Yeah. And it's kind of funny right now. You go through social media and, you know, you see some people, sometimes they're crabby. Sometimes they're just being funny about it. But you say, oh, you know, I like to be alone or, oh, I just want to be in bed all day or, hey, I want to cancel all these plans. But, uh, you know, this kind of almost makes me want to say, hey, maybe don't turn down those plans if somebody says, hey, let's reconnect real quick or, hey, come down to the local pub and let's have a drink or something, because it could make you feel better on the other end of things. And you mentioned in the article, too, uh, uh, I thought it was a very good exercise, even making a list of people, of friends that you do miss and writing them a letter, reaching out. I thought that would be a great exercise for people to do. Exactly. That's what I actually did once I noticed I was really longing for my old friends. And there's people, some I just lost touch of during the pandemic. Everybody seems to have gotten busier, but somehow gone more internal into their own lives. And then there's just some that I had lost touch with over the decades. And so I did sit down and write a list of people. Here's the people I really do miss. And I'm, I can't do it all at once. But once a week, I made a promise to myself, I'm going to reach out like in a meaningful way and write an email, you know, or, or see if I could get on the phone with each person on this list, I'm going to start knocking off my list. You, you mentioned, I am really interested, you mentioned, you know, sometimes we just want to stay in bed. The really sick thing about depression or loneliness is that it makes us pull even further away from people. And that's, that makes us feel worse, sadly. And so you're right, we want to push towards those connections. We have to mention the pandemic and what's been going on with that. You know, you talked about how psychological distress often causes this nostalgia. And, and, you know, we've gone through the all these different inflection points throughout the pandemic. Obviously, things are opening up more now. We're, you know, we're getting back to that normal, if, if you can call it that. But we, we can't kind of dismiss that. And all these feelings of nostalgia, reconnecting with people gets you back in that positive mood. Self-esteem, confidence goes up. You know, it's important to do these things, you know, to flip the script on what happened, you know, all, through all this crazy times. 
It really is. Like, if you think about it this way, like, our mental health and mental well-being took a big hit in the pandemic. If, if, we, if we felt that, say, our physical health took a hit, it did too, but we would go to the gym, we would try to eat better, we would do things actively, and that's what I believe as somebody who looks at relationships all the time and writes about them. We need to actively try to push ourselves to reconnect right now. That is going to help us. It's going to help us rebuild our lives and feel better. One of the quotes that stood out to me in your story of some of the people that you spoke to specifically and and to the point about kind of rebuilding after the pandemic, one of the ladies that you spoke to connected with a friend, they got together in person, and she said that going through old journals and stuff like that that they shared, she said, it reminded me of the moments that built me. And I think that's more important than ever right now, you know, after, you know, being torn down and just the craziness of the pandemic, this connecting with old friends can help you rebuild all of that. And you mentioned before we got on just reaction to the story. Obviously, every time you write something like this, people start commenting and everything. What's been the reaction from people that, you, that you've been hearing for this? You know, I thought this would be a nice story, as I told you. You know, people might like it. But it turned out it really hit a nerve with people, and that I think they are out there. I've got letters all day, today and yesterday, really poignant letters saying, I reconnected with somebody, or, oh, my gosh, here's the picture of my five best friends or my eight best friends from kindergarten. I'm in my 60s. We get together every year. Like, people had these really wonderful stories where they were working on it, and some people said, oh, wait, I read this. I'm going to reach out to someone. I think it hit a nerve because of this. We've lost a piece of ourselves, many pieces of ourselves, sadly, during this pandemic. We are trying to build it back. We're making some progress. But for me, I know that what I'm missing is some of those connections. I know that's sort of something I haven't yet got back to the way I'd like. And I think that's it. Like we, those are, an old friend's going to mirror back who we are to us. And that's really important as we build back our lives. Before we're done, if you could just tell us about Kevin and Ron, two guys that you profiled who did make this connection, and it ended in a very sweet way. You know, one of them told him, hey, I I consider you a brother after all this, but they hadn't spoken for 25 years or something like that. These are guys in their early 60s. They met on a train from Indianapolis to Seattle or to Salt Lake City, I believe. Sorry. Salt Lake City in, you know, the early 90s, and they became friends and their wives, and they all got along and vacation together and really cared about each other and went through some life moments, first children together. But then they fall off like we all do often in, you know, busy lives. And they hadn't spoken in 25 years. And Kevin's missing his friend. He lives in Denver. He knows his friends in Tacoma. He's really missing him. So he goes and he reaches out. He says, oh, by the way, my wife and I are going to be in Seattle. And so they get together and they get together and they talk the entire weekend. And it's just exactly like they picked up. And Kevin tells his friend at the end of this weekend, you are like a brother to me. And and, and Ron, the friend, says, yes, you know, I, I get this. I missed you too. You know, and they both wrote me these lovely notes today. Thank you. Our friendship means the world to us. I just, I think that we have, in, in order to sort of survive this pandemic on many levels, we went internal into ourselves. And I think the going back and the reconnecting, it is what's going to drag us that final way across this pandemic. Definitely. I don't know if it'll be a finish line, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Definitely. No, it made me feel good reading the story and made me think of those friends that I've been missing, too. So I hope a lot of people can make some really good reconnections over the next, uh, you know, the holidays and, and, and beyond that even. Elizabeth Bernstein, reporter and author of the relationship column Bonds at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.